Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. hi <laughs> Welcome to Kids Birth Tales. My brother's name is Ayi and I'm Guy Boy. Thank you for missing from Mommy's podcast. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Kiwi Birth Tales. I am your host Jordan. I'm a mum of two. I've got Jai who's three and Ali who is 20 months. I've got a business baby which is your birth project and your birth project is the online hypnobirthing course you need to create your best birth. It is also an online store to support pregnancy, birth and postpartum. There's some incredible products in there all recommended by me or the mums that listen to the podcast or follow along on the social media communities. If you order on the day before one o'clock, I try to get orders out same day unless it's a pre-order and there are some incredible toolkits or bundles on there that help you save some money and give you all of the necessary goodies for pregnancy, birth and postpartum. So make sure you go and check that out oh goodness me I did manage to get another birth story episode out this week I didn't think I was going to but here we are (laughs) and today's a goodie um I speak with Claire and Claire is the PCOS nutritionist you might have heard her podcast or follow her on social media she's a wealth of knowledge about all things PCOS um, and it was really interesting to hear her experience with pregnancy and birth and postpartum and sort of some PCOS information woven into her story as well. So I know that you're going to enjoy this episode. Claire ended up having um, a failed induction for lack of a better word. Um, And she had a previous um, surgery that meant that her cervix wasn't going to properly dilate. So she talks us through that and how she landed um, at an emergency C-section and how that all sort of played out. What she was she knew in pregnancy about C-sections and um, yeah, I guess her experience with the birth education side of things was really interesting too. So I know you're going to enjoy this episode. I'd love to hear your feedback if you want to find me at Kiwi Birth Tales on Instagram or you can send me an email, Jordan with a Y, J-O-R-D-Y-N at KiwiBirthTales.com. I hope you love the episode. Thanks again for choosing to have me in your ears. I'm super grateful that you come back here week on week and listen to these episodes. I hope you get what you're looking for and enjoy this beautiful episode with Claire. Hi Claire, thanks so much for joining me on the Kiwi Birth Tales podcast today. My pleasure. Long time listener, first time caller here. So it's so good. I was saying to you that I was going to... Um, do this episode myself on my podcast and, I, and then I was thinking oh god how boring like it'd be so much more fun to do it with you yes yep I'm so happy that you're here and I'm really looking forward to our chat today but before we jump into it why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about you and who is in your family yeah so my name is Claire and I am a registered nutritionist and I specialize in polycystic ovarian syndrome and so my business is called the PCOS Nutritionist, uh, soon to also be Ovi, which is our new um, app for people with PCOS to help them identify oh. what's driving their PCOS and to make the most important lifestyle changes for them. So it's our way of being able to do that at a must, much more cost-effective way than having to go mm. and see a nutritionist or dietitian or exercise physiologist or naturopath or anyone else that kind of helps in that and the pathway for improving mm. PCOS through changes. And so, yeah, we're really trying to find a way to um, do that in a much more cost-effective way that people can actually afford. So that's what Ovi is and what we've been working on for the last five years or so since mm-hmm. um, since trying to, trying to find a better way to do this. Uh, and that all came out of my personal experience of having PCOS and just not really getting any help from mm. my doctors or anyone really I spoke to even if it was like a woman specific doctor or a naturopath Mm. or a dietitian um and luckily I was already a registered nutritionist and I also have a degree in exercise science so I could 
I could understand what I needed to do, but it wasn't really until I really understood PCOS that I really mm. got that there are fundamental things that happen in people with PCOS, like for some people their insulin and blood sugar isn't working well, for other people their stress hormones aren't working well, mm. or their thyroid or inflammation, and these are what really um, contribute to the symptoms, and these are the things that we can actually fix as well and therefore improve yeah. the symptoms. And so, yeah, so that was really for me was a huge, um, huge part of my journey to becoming relatively symptom-free now. Um, and also a huge part of my birth story as well was all of the components of PCOS and how that definitely affected my mm. um, my birth story, which is is super interesting because I've listened to so many of these podcasts and it's um, it, it's it's quite common to hear some of the similar things coming up, like gestational mm. diabetes, which is not something that I had, but was something that I was aware that I was predisposed to and low milk supply. So yeah, there's lots of things that when you understand why it just makes so much more sense <laughs> that's me that's what I do and so in my family is um, my partner Scott and my daughter Florence who's 14 months 14 and a half months now so she was <laughs> born in March last year yeah awesome very cool well we've got lots to chat about today and I'm very interested in yeah your sort of journey with PCOS and pregnancy as well because we have a lot of um, mums who come on the podcast and have PCOS or um, were diagnosed with it at some stage. So, yeah, really interesting. Lots of things to talk about. <laughs> but um, let's start with the journey to pregnancy for you. So talk us through what did that look like and, um, yeah, it came to know how your PCOS might have um, played a part in that process. Yeah, so it probably the journey to pregnancy probably <clears> – <throat> started unintentionally 10 years ago when or even more when I first got diagnosed with PCOS and mm. like many people with PCOS the first thing they'll say when you're like yeah okay finally I've got an answer for all these symptoms like why I'm getting acne and why I'm gaining weight and why I haven't had a period in three years and they're like <laughs> yes the answer is go on birth control and take maybe mm. take metformin and you're like, cool. Um, and also, oh, yeah, that's right. You probably won't be able to conceive. So just come back and see us when you want to get like, pregnant. And I was like, that's not even on my radar right now. Like irrelevant, but also alarming. Um, so mm. tell me more about that. And they didn't really have an answer. They were just like, oh, PCOS just, you know, like you probably won't be able to get pregnant. So, yeah, just come back and see us. And I was like, wow, that's, that's quite a statement. Um, mm -hmm. It did, definitely did rock me even though that wasn't on my radar at the time. And um, and really, you know, for me, it would have been, and for every person that I work with, it would just be so much more helpful if there was some context given around that statement. Mm. Like, yes, there, there can be fertility challenges with PCOS, but if you know, if they just maybe even gave a one-line statement that was like, you're not ovulating at the moment, that's why you're not getting a period for the last three years. But, hey, if you can get that back, if you can get a regular period, regularly ovulating, then it's highly likely that you won't have any problems conceiving. And mm. um, so just understanding a bit about why the fertility issues, because when, especially when you don't know much about it, you just, your mind immediately goes to, oh my God, like IVF is the only answer. And that was certainly yeah. the case for me. I remember getting out to the car after that and going, oh, I'm going to have to set up a new bank account to start saving for IVF. Like that <laughs> literally is what I thought. Yeah. And yeah. Um, but yeah, so fast forward, a f you know, a few years when I really understood about what was going on, why I was getting these symptoms and then what I could do about it. So for me, um, when I was diagnosed, I was also diagnosed as like insulin resistant, which is mm -hmm. sort of in the pre-diabetes spectrum, um, which was quite a surprise because I was an elite athlete at the stage. I was competing for New Zealand in athletics and then triathlon. So that was quite a shock. And also I was a registered nutritionist by the stage as well. So I was like, mm. whoa, how did this happen? Like I am what I thought was the healthiest person I knew at the time. And, um, you know, like I was training 20 plus hours a week for um, triathlon. I was eating, like following the sport nutrition guidelines. And so that was, you know, a huge, a huge thing to be diagnosed as mm. pre-diabetic at 25. Um, and so really what I found out like as I started learning more about this was that's it's really common in PCOS about 85% of people have some insulin resistance or pre-diabetes mm -hmm. and this is really part of the picture of why we develop 
the symptoms that we do. And this is one of the things that can be really, really easily addressed through um, lifestyle changes. So when I understood that, and I actually like modified my diet, like yes, I was following the sports nutrition guidelines and I was training heaps, but those are the way that I was doing it is not the best thing for someone who's insulin resistant. And so I had to, even though I was eating quote unquote healthily, I had to eat differently to support my blood sugar and insulin. And same thing, I had to change the kind of exercise that I was doing. Um, it was really causing a huge amount of problems with my stress hormones, which was also causing my body not to ovulate. And so mm. I really had to change those like components and also lots of other things. Like, I, you know, I was sacrificing sleep for training and for work uh, and thinking that I was doing the right thing when that really wasn't supporting me. So fast forward to when I actually implemented those changes, um, my body started ovulating relatively quickly. And then, um, so I was back probably five years before we started trying to conceive, I was already ovulating really regularly for like five plus years. And so when it came to trying to conceive, we actually conceived really easily within the, like the first try. And I was not young. I was 36 at the time. So um, that was, it just kind of shows that, uh when we can if we can fix all those hormonal factors of why we might not be ovulating for most people mm. for 80 percent of people with pcos like that's all we need to do um yeah. is really get what i call the fertile ingredients right and then um things like there's no reason why fertility should be an issue so that was mm. that was definitely my experience and um and so it was a really like for what could have been a really hard journey it was actually a really easy journey in the end yeah yeah Amazing. And how were you feeling when you found out that you were pregnant? Did you miss a period? Were you experiencing other symptoms? Talk us through finding out that you were pregnant. Yeah, so I've um, tracked my basal body temperature for years. This is one way that mm-hmm. I used for contraceptive purposes. And then also, yeah. like, that's how I knew that I was ovulating and knew that my cycles were really regular. Um, and so I could actually see that my basal body temperature stayed high so this is one of the first mm. things that we can actually see before even a pregnancy test will tell you that you're pregnant yeah. and so I, yeah. I kind of knew that and then it was just the pregnancy test to like to confirm that but it was really interesting I still felt quite shocked seeing it on the <laughs> pregnancy test like yeah. it's it's kind of weird like it was just this oh my god this is actually happening um even though <laughs> I knew that that's what it should show it still was quite surprising to me yeah, um, yeah. So, I reckon yeah. that honestly, like every person feels that way. Like even if you know and, and like you just know that you're pregnant, it's still a shock to see it on the test, I reckon. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that like yeah. even though this is my job, I work with people about this yeah. all the time. Yeah. It was still such a surprise to see it myself. Um yeah. and I, I remember showing it to Scott and I think his first response was, Holy shit. um but I think that we both probably expected that it would take a little bit longer than what it Mm. did just because of our age and um and but I think that's why it was like oh gosh this is this is really happening now very exciting but also still (laughs) yeah yeah awesome and in your first trimester did you have many pregnancy symptoms how were you feeling in those first yeah 12 weeks um just, I was actually quite lucky. I didn't have um, too much nausea, just that constant hangover kind of feeling. Mm. So mm. it was mostly kind of food aversions that um, I was, yeah, I sort of couldn't eat what I would normally eat. And and yeah. actually it was actually a really good experience for me because working with so many patients all the time who then, you know, like one of, one of the things I work with with PCOS patients is on fertility. And so many of mm. them, get pregnant and then go through first trimester and we're having to adapt what we're eating. And so it's actually, I knew this theoretically that you didn't have any control over this. It wasn't something that willpower could overcome to, to keep eating, you know, maybe what mm-hmm. I've been giving them, but it was actually really good to actually feel that in reality myself mm-hmm. because it just gave me mm-hmm. so much more empathy for my patients to go. Yeah. You know what? I get it. Like yeah. if you, if your body's saying no to that food, it's a hard no. This is not something that willpower can override. This is a hard mm-hmm. no. So we need to find something to get around that. So that was um, not so great at the time, but actually 
I was pretty lucky. I think I only vomited like twice. And so <laughs> compared to so many of my patients, I got up, got off absolutely scot-free. Um, but yeah, apart from that, could still norm- do everything normally, still was still able to work out. Um, actually, that was the one place I did vomit was in the, in the gym. It was quite alarming mm-hmm. under the water, under the, in the bin under the water fountain. That was a bit, um, <laughs> oh no. It was, yeah, it was quite rough. Um, I like the, the, like I tried to like hide it as much as I could with like the handy towels but still the guy on the like bench beside me was just like uh, yuck but yeah so it was it was a pretty pretty good trimester first trimester by all accounts yeah awesome and did you go with a midwife for your care or what did you choose to do there I went with an obstetrician oh, um yeah. And because I, I did experience some early pregnancy bleeding and um, not much, just a little bit. Um, and I had had a previous LETS procedure for abnormal, abnormal cervical cells. And so mm-hmm. I knew that this could predispose me to um, like early labor, preterm labor. Mm-hmm. In actual fact, it was completely opposite, but it was <laughs> that. And I had private health insurance that did cover an obstetrician if there were like if there were reasons and my doctor was like yeah the select procedure like it is a bit dicey I you know I would go with an obstetrician so that's why I ended up going with an OB yeah yeah awesome cool and what about the testing that's offered in pregnancy did you choose to do it all what were your thoughts on finding out the sex of your baby talk us through that so I was quite, I didn't really care. Um, in hindsight, I did. I really did enjoy finding out the sex because yeah. um, like both Scott and I were quite sure that it was a boy, although I was just saying it was a girl because I wanted to like, you know, create some diversity of like, you know, <laughs> tension. He was saying it's a boy, I was saying it's a girl, but I did actually feel that it was a boy. And so I feel like if I'd gone through the whole pregnancy thinking that I it would have taken me quite a while to get my head around that she mm. wasn't a boy. Um, so in hindsight, I'm quite glad, but I wasn't that, I wasn't um, necessarily super keen on finding out. I was like, oh, whatever. Scott was like adamant that we're going to find out. I actually, we went through the, um, we did get all the tests. So we got the, um, um, is it the NIP test? The 11 week oh, test? Oh yes, NIPT. Yeah. yeah, NIPT. Um, and so I think we got a call from the midwife at the obstetrician um, clinic. Um, actually, it was during lockdown. So we're out on a bike ride, as you do. And so we're out and I remember getting a call from her and I was like, got off my bike and was standing in the gutter. And she was like, mm-hmm. well, she, she was on speakerphone and she was like, do you want to find out the sex of the baby? And Scott was like, yes. And I was like, not here. We're standing <laughs> in the gutter. Like, can we make it like slightly more of a, a sub, you know, like just an, an event. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so we did end up finding out um, that we were having a girl relatively early, like yeah, 11, 12 weeks. Um, and then, yeah, and then definitely did opt for all the testing. And in fact, I was like, quite pushy for more testing. Like I was like, I want my ferritin measured every like trimester. I want to go for the full gestational diabetes test. I don't want just the hour, but like the intermediate one. Um, and I, that's just because of what I do. I, I knew mm. that I was going to be at risk and I just wanted to like know and be able to make, you know, do something with that information as opposed to... Yeah. Um, just flying blind and hoping for the best. Yeah, 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 fair enough. Awesome. And what about um, birth education? So did you do antenatal classes? What were your thoughts around, yeah, finding out more information and education about birth? Yeah, so I did um, I did antenatal classes. I also um, did – I – what I what I found in the antenatal class was that it was really great for a lot of information, but there wasn't like probably enough information for me on like the mechanism of birth and how that actually baby actually comes out mm-hmm. and what you could do to support that in terms of like the actual pushing and pelvic floor and things like that. So I also mm-hmm. did a, another course um, through a um, through some like physios that I found who were really, it was really helpful on like the mechanics of birth and and pushing and what you can do and kind of preparing for labor and and stuff like that. So I think the antenatal group Mm. was 
it was awesome learned so much but then I also did more um more work yeah. on that side as well um yeah, yeah. And, and like <laughs> we'll talk about it in a minute but probably a waste of time in my, in, in my <laughs> uh, story but it was good to have like done that prep and and just yeah. be a little bit more aware of what I could do yeah yeah for sure and did you have like based on that information any thoughts around what you wanted your birth to look like or a birth plan yeah I always found the term birth plan really strange because I was like this is mm. one thing we have absolutely no control over <laughs> so I um I was like I want to prep for like if my body can birth vaginally then yes that's the way that I would want to do that and I will go with whatever I'm feeling at the time maybe mm. I love swimming so maybe um in the water would be good but um, if we get to the hospital and there are no birth pools or anything like that, then I'm not going to be too worried about it because yeah. I feel like if I had had this in my head about exactly how it was going to go and then something didn't go right, like we got to the hospital and there were no birth pools, then I would have, you know, like I, it would have thrown me more than just mm, being a mm. bit relaxed and fluid about it. Yeah. Um, and I think that probably put me in good stead for um, – the fact that my that my birth did not go like that at all and mm. I, but I didn't really it didn't bother me at all so yeah. um but even like in saying that at the start like one of the other reasons I did go with obstetrician is um I I felt like quite I found that in New Zealand it's quite hard that we don't have a choice about how we birth um mm. And I, yeah, I feel like this is, I understand the reasons, but I, I feel that this is quite a, yeah, it's a big thing for a lot of people. And if you have um, really strong feelings that you don't want a vaginal delivery, it's really hard if you, if that's mm, not what you want. Mm. And I, I feel that our system really doesn't cater for any other opinions or not just opinions, but um people's people's feelings around how they would want to birth yeah. and um and so yeah that was that was one thing I did I did find tricky so I guess from the start I probably didn't have really strong strong feelings that mm. I wanted this you know really beautiful mother earth at home vaginal delivery that was non-medicated that to me it was like whatever happens happens um mm -hmm. and if I can birth vaginally then I'll probably recover quite quickly and all of the benefits of that but if I can't then also not a big deal yeah yeah awesome cool and what about your birth preparation were you doing anything um like antenatal expressing or you know drinking the teas eating the dates all mm. of that sort of stuff what did the end of your pregnancy look like? Yeah, end of pregnancy looked like a lot of curb walking and a lot of sideways <laughs> look from the like, people yeah. around the neighbourhood. Um, yeah. Also, so I um, I did a lot of um, perineal massage. So that was one thing mm -hmm. that my OB was like, this is, you know, a really good thing to start doing from about 38 weeks to... Mm. And also the course that I was doing as well also said that just in terms of like reducing risk of tearing. Um, a lot harder than what it sounds. Like it is. Perineal massage <laughs> sounds like it, that should be a nice thing. It is. Yeah. It's I found it quite painful and it is quite like mm. tricky mechanically to get, because basically yeah. what it is, is you're, you're pulling down on your perineum, which is the part between your like vulva and anus. And so you're really like getting your finger in there and pulling that down to try mm. and like stretch that out. So mechanically, like, yeah, it's actually quite hard to get around there and also then yeah. quite painful and like kind of pulling that down. So, um, mm. yeah, I was like, this needs a rebrand. This is not a massage. <laughs> Although um, probably a good way of getting people into it. But so I did that. Um, I was doing um, expressing, although didn't get anything, like not a single drop. And mm. that was quite interesting. Mm. Um, and, yeah, but apart from that, nothing else. Um, due to my, like, insulin resistance, dates were off the table because they're still going to increase your blood glucose. And I was like, actually, yeah. 
the research is pretty slim on their actual mm. effect and the risk of like my blood glucose because by the third trimester so one thing I did do was I was wearing a continuous glucose monitor just once each trimester just kind of see what my blood glucose mm -hmm. was doing and by the end of the by the third trimester I could see that I had you know I tried different foods and see how my blood glucose responded even though like I wasn't mm. I didn't get diagnosed with gestational diabetes but I just knew that I was more at risk and during pregnancy our bodies get more and more insulin resistant so through via through the trimester and that's the way that our body delivers nutrients to the baby so I would have something like I remember having testing different foods and one was because I was pregnant during summer and I was like right I want to find a great non-alcoholic drink that I can have during summer so I had like a Heineken Zero and my blood glucose spiked up to like nine which was quite high like the optimal mm. that I would work with my patients is like seven seven and a half and so I was like whoa this is not like going to do it for me and so I also then tested some dates because I was like well I know the dates are going to be like you know recommended towards the end and same mm. thing so yeah. they were off the card to me um and yeah but apart from that yeah just lots of curb walking and just lots of mobility exercises that was really the main thing that I was doing was a lot of um still a lot of pelvic floor actually more like learning to release my pelvic floor because yeah. um when yeah. I did I did a pelvic floor um, Warren of Fitness with um, Caitlin at Unity Studios. So Caitlin, who's the oh, vagina cool. physio on Instagram. Yeah. And she was like, well, Claire, you are just trying way too hard here with your pelvic floor exercises. She was <laughs> like, because they have a really really cool device. And so she gets you to like, um, gets you to do your pelvic floor exercise and then she can see on the machine. And she was like, what you're doing is you're like doing it. And then you're doing this extra like kind of crunch at the end, trying to like go extra hard. And she was mm. like, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. So mm. that was, um, my problem was more like turning it off. So yeah, doing a lot of that, doing a lot of mobility, still doing a lot of strength training to try and stay pain-free, which worked so well, right up until I was still like lifting weights until like two days prior. And I mm. just felt great. I literally felt like I was myself with a basketball up my top. That's <laughs> no symptoms no pain no like no nothing and so yeah. it was yeah I was really lucky yeah yeah awesome cool and okay so we're at the end of your pregnancy um and you're feeling pretty good talk us through that sort of final couple of days of being pregnant did your labor end up starting spontaneously what did all of that look like yeah so this is where it got really interesting so um so the research at the moment shows that if you're over 35, your chance of having a vaginal delivery are better if you go into labor about 39 weeks. And mm -hmm. so um, I talked to my obstetrician about this and they were like, yep, totally agree. Let's, if you haven't gone into labor, let's, you know, let, let's get you induced. That wasn't accepted by the hospital. And so we didn't end up doing that, but um, at 40 weeks, um, forty like forty one weeks they they could get it through, and so I went in for an induction. Um, and so this was also like the middle of that. So this was February twenty twenty two. So at the end of February, so that real peak, first peak of COVID, oh, where it just suddenly COVID, exploded. Yeah. And so I went into North, you know, check myself into North Shore Hospital, like get strapped up onto the machine, get your first dose of misoprostol and nothing next dose nothing next dose nothing all the way through 20, 48 hours 16 doses of misoprostol mm, nothing. Wow. Mm. and so um yeah so but also like during this time it was like like I remember like being in my room and the doors were open to the other room on the other side and the nurse came mm. in and she was like to the lady she was like okay so you've actually tested positive um which oh. means we're going to move you to the COVID ward and like this was that first outbreak where like we'd never really been exposed mm. to COVID mm. before and I was just like man this is so like my whole pregnancy has been marred by like COVID like Scott had not been able to come to a single scan or appointment mm. like wasn't even allowed like our the um even the scan they wouldn't even allow me to call him have him on the phone which was just so appalling bizarre. And bizarre. Like, that's mm. just it's ridiculous like to the point of 
like insanity mm-hmm. and so like my whole pregnancy had been marred by all of these COVID like precautions and yet when it came time like when I was at my most vulnerable and also when it was at its highest peak like no one even shut my doors or her doors mm-hmm. I was like I'm strapped in here I can't do anything are you even going to like try and protect me from getting this and so then um we had all of this like drama of like you know, of being regularly tested and then the fact that I yeah, had been there for 48 hours and hadn't gone into labour and so then had to go back to the obstetrician the next day to try the balloon insertion and it was when they were doing the, like when he was trying the balloon insertion, that's when he was like realised um, he couldn't actually find my cervix so when they did the Lex procedure a few years ago um, they, in his words did such a good job that there's so much scar tissue that your cervix is just basically a little like stub and actually there's so much scar tissue there that that's why the misoprostol didn't work because there is like there's mm. no blood flow to your cervix yeah and so he was like i can't there's no nowhere to insert the balloon and also there's no way that you're there's enough there will never be enough blood flow to the cervix for that to dilate so um mm. yeah so then the the answer was like the only way for you was a C-section. Um, but it was still yeah. quite interesting. Because then, so I was scheduled for a C-section the next day. Well, no, I wasn't. I was scheduled to go into the hospital to have a chat about what we could do to then maybe the answer mm-hmm. would be a C-section. It was just so bizarre. And, like, I got in there and mm. I was like, okay, so they were like, okay, come, we're prepping you for surgery now. And I was like, okay, I'll, am I having a C-section? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, okay, cool. Well, that wasn't, <laughs> like, communicated. It was still to be, have mm. a chat about what we're going to do. So... Yeah. Um, but I think it was just a bit of a time of like just rampant COVID and like mm-hmm. can't with demand. Um, and so, yeah, so I scheduled in just in for a C-section then, which was quite scary. I, I felt, even though I didn't like logically, I knew this happened and I didn't have any real like fears about it. Mm-hmm. Just that waiting before you go into surgery. And I think for me, it was the, the, the crunch time where I would meet this baby and I was so worried that there was going to be something wrong with her just in that moment. Never before had I felt this, but mm. it was this, this, oh my gosh, I'm finally the, like, I'm going to see her. And if something's wrong, it's going to be my fault because I've housed her for the last nine months. Um, mm-hmm. It was just such a strange like thought process, but I think it was all of mm. the, um, just the adrenaline of like, fine, like you know, getting ready for surgery and just waiting outside theatre and then being wheeled in and then um, having to sit there. So you have to sit on the table and they um, they put in the spinal anaesthetic and then also the um, the epidural and as well the uh, antibiotics as well. And mm-hmm. then, um, yeah, and then the process was actually then relatively quick. It was like within 10 minutes mm-hmm. after they had tested that I couldn't feel anything. It was about 10 minutes by the time that they had her out. So it all sort of just came so fast. Yeah. Um, and it was so funny. I like, they were like, do you want to see her? And I was like, no, Scott, make sure she's okay. And then bring her over to me. Like, was, <laughs> that's how worried I was. I was just like, I want you to like make sure first and then you can bring her to me. Um, so, yes, that was but like a really amazing experience. And, and again, why well, I'm really glad they didn't have any really set birth plan or hadn't, yeah. hadn't um, created this thing in my mind about mm-hmm. being really attached to a certain way of birthing because at the end of the day, like, there was absolutely no option. Like, mm, to the point mm. where they were like, we're so lucky that you didn't go and you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You didn't actually go into labor during the misoprostol because you because your can't, service can't dilate. You would have dilated elsewhere, which probably would have led to hemorrhage. So it's actually mm. really lucky that you never went into labor. 
Um, and and I think that's the thing is when you know that when that is completely taken away from you, there is no other option. It is, um, yeah, like it's not like you can be like, oh well, let's try. And it's like no, yeah, that's not yeah. Like, whereas I think if I had these really strong thoughts about how I wanted to birth, um, I would have been quite resistant to that outcome. But as it mm. was, I was like, okay, that's fine. Well, what do we do next? Like, what's like what's yeah. the outcome? this yeah so, um, did you feel like yeah, you knew much about c-sections like before you went into no. your birth did you have an idea about them no nothing Jordan mm. and I think this is again a bit of a problem with our antenatal care like mm. and I'm so glad that you talk more about this in your antenatal class mm. But, mm. and you're preparing for birth twice but um yeah I feel like there was only one way taught at antenatal class and that was that you would go into, into labor and this would be the outcome um, yeah. was having a vaginal delivery. And it's just not the reality. I mean, like a third no. of births in New Zealand end up in C-section, right? And yeah. I think that, um, yeah, a bit of information about like, okay, this is what will happen. You know, yeah. like this is where you in the hospital like you, you know you'll wait outside and you'll go in and then this will happen um you'll get like these are the if, if you if it isn't like a real real true emergency then these are the kind of things the drugs that they'll put you in and these are the kind of decisions that you might need to have to make and and really mm. having that knowledge to be able to prepare for that yeah um but and the same thing with the other thing that I found that was not discussed at all was when it came to breastfeeding, what if you had low supply? And I remember bringing mm. this up with uh, our antenatal group in class was fantastic, really great, loved it. But um, they, I remember her saying, only 4% of the population in the world like can't breastfeed. And I was like, yeah, but what about those just with low supply? And mm. she was like, oh, that doesn't really exist. It's all about supply and demand. And I was like, <laughs> like categorically wrong like Mm -hmm. that is yes supply and demand is a huge part of breastfeeding Mm. but also having the breast tissue to be able to produce milk having Mm. the hormonal like balance Mm. there enabled it's not going to stop your prolactin from rising and all of that like it's it's way more complicated than just supply and demand for some people for like if if things are going well then yes there's you know, that's great. But if things are not yeah. going well, then just telling someone they're not demanding it enough is like mm. a surefire way for that mother, young mother to start breaking down because she is doing 100%. everything. She's pumping, pumping on the hour, every hour, plus mm. like trying to, you know, feed as well. Um, and it's, yeah, I, I just think that those are two things that if I could give any feedback about the antenatal care, yeah. like antenatal, like, that would be the two things it's like okay this is in the picture perfect world what happens and that's great mm. but what if it doesn't like who can you see what can you do um mm. rather than just being sort of left to your own devices about that totally and Claire you just remind me like I don't need the reminder because I'm passionate anyway but hearing you talk about that just like reminds me why I'm so passionate about this podcast and you know, my birth course and all of that sort of stuff, because Mm -hmm. it's true that these things just aren't talked about, but they're actually happening every single day and are really normal. And if you're not someone who's heard about that before or had experience with that before, all you hear is, oh, you don't have enough milk because the supply and demand isn't there. And therefore it's your fault and it's an awful Mm -hmm. feeling. And then that mum guilt starts and it's just like a drainer on your mental health. And oh God, I could just talk about it for hours. So yeah, hundred percent. Same. I am with you there. And it's Mm. just one of those things that's like, God, there is already so much that we have to think about as new mums. And it's just like when to have someone. And I, again, I was super lucky that um, my Plunkett nurse was also really, really, and like, God, I was so lucky that I knew that this was, so I, luckily because of the work I do, I knew that about, it's actually about 30% of people with PCOS that have, that experience low breast milk supply. So I knew it was a risk factor Mm. and I knew what to look out for. So the major red flags are 
So what happens in PCOS is that you might not actually develop the breast tissue during adolescence because your body is exposed to more testosterone and therefore maybe not as much estrogen. You might not actually develop the breast tissue that you need to make milk, right? So that's number one problem. So if you, that can be in adolescence, but it can also be during pregnancy. So one thing that I noticed during pregnancy is that I didn't really get much breast change at all. I still wore the same <laughs> bra through my entire pregnancy. And yeah. so I said this to my obstetrician, who was awesome. She's um, She'd previously been herself through a surrogacy. So she, her baby was born by a surrogate. And so she started to like pump to try and stimulate her own breast milk supply. So she was great at talking me through that prenatally. But I said mm. that to her. I was like, hey, look, Joy, I haven't actually had any change in like breast tissue, you know, like breast throughout pregnancy. And she was like, mm. yeah, that is a red flag. Where, yeah, okay. Here's the number for a lactation consultant um, if you need it. Also, here's what you might do. Like, you, we might end up prescribing you domperidone. This is what I took when I, like, when my baby was, was born. And, like, these are the things that I can do for you medically. Uh, I can't talk about herbs because I don't know anything about that. But um, I do know that a lot of people use homeopathic and herbal mm. um, remedies as well. So go and, like, speak to someone who's an expert about that. Um, but she was, yeah, she was really good. But if you didn't know that, you would just think, oh, well, some people do and some people don't. Mm. And, and I think this is also why I didn't see, even though I was like expressing prenatally, I didn't get anything, like not a drop. Um, mm. And she was also like, yeah, that's also alarming. So, yeah, let's look mm. into that. But, um, yeah, whether – and it's always like one of those things that I – I after I actually and, and who knows why this is my it may have been that it may have been the fact that all of that misoprostol in my system meant that mm-hmm. so I didn't get any let down uh, for ten days post birth and so mm-hmm. um, yeah and then by that stage Flossie had to be on formula as well. And so whether then the demand wasn't there, even though I was like pumping to stimulate demand, um, Mm. but just because then like she was getting that, there wasn't that same kind of like real cluster feeding that might stimulate Mm. it. So lots of things could have like could have happened. But um, I think that for me, probably that like lack of breast tissue change was probably a big, a big part of the fact that Mm. why I didn't get the demand. Um, And so again, like probably like, that was probably the hardest one for me. So I wasn't super like wedded to the like birth story part, but being a nutritionist, you can't get through a nutrition degree without having it ingrained into you that breast is best and all of the evidence mm. behind that. And so that was probably the harder one for me. But it, it like one thing I did do was I did go back and actually like critique a lot of that research and um and it was really good for me to see more of the later research on that. So they've done often what you hear about breast milk and breast milk is like fantastic, but they'll often cite the Brazilian study, which did find that there was, even when they tried to control for things like socioeconomic factors, like whether the mum, you know, was working or not working, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they did find that babies that were breastfed had higher IQ, lower incidence of um autoimmune conditions, asthma, eczema, et cetera. And so that's often what's cited. But what they don't talk about was there was, there's also a really big study that they did in the US, which is a sibling study. And so whenever it comes to talking about like the benefits of breast milk, what's really hard is to, to count like the effect of socioeconomic status, which is that mums, especially in the US where they don't have a lot of and like um, maternity leave, People that are a higher socioeconomic can take a longer time off work. And we know that when you have more time off work, you're more likely to be able to have the time to breastfeed. And so that is, but also when you're higher socioeconomic, you are more likely to, your children are more likely to go to better schools or you're more likely mm-hmm. to have the time to spend with them going through their homework. They're more likely to see a doctor. There's, there's so many things that also go hand in hand with that. And so I think what's really interesting is a study that they did on siblings where they took where they looked at where one sibling was breastfed and one sibling was not breastfed. And what they found when they then looked at the difference between those siblings is they found absolutely no difference, no difference in IQ, no difference Mm. in like allergies, asthma, eczema, anything like that. And that's probably what then I found a lot easier about 
um, sort of put my mind at ease because I had had that yeah. drilled into me about like the benefits of breast milk. And so I still mm. think that breast milk was brilliant. And so what I ended up doing was co-feeding the whole way. So I would um, breastfeed Flossie as much as I could. So she would just breastfeed first and then we'd top her up with formula afterwards. Um, and even like she, she quickly figured out she's a smart girl. She quickly figured mm-hmm. out that she could get milk way quicker from the bottle, um, which is mm-hmm often cited as a reason not to bottle feed but she did that she's super smart and so by three months she was like nah I'm not breastfeeding I know that you're going to express this and give it to me so I'll just take the bottle <laughs> things and so she she yeah. weaned herself she refused to breastfeed from when she was three months old and then so I ended up exclusively pumping for until like she was seven months um yeah. and then I was like I'm done like this is mm. this I've this is a huge amount of work and I'm happy to put that work in but like I kind of drew the line in the sand and I was like I'll do this until six seven months until she's starting on solids and, and a little bit more yeah. uh, getting a bit more food from that and then I was out mm. but until then she was also co-fed with formula as well yeah yeah awesome cool and how so if we just backtrack a little bit to your c-section and sort of recovery there so how um how did you find the initial couple of hours after your c-section and what actually happened when they did the um surgery and she was born and yeah talk us through the sort of next couple of hours post-birth yeah so it's a bit of a blur like Mm -hmm. I remember um so you go out of the out of the operating theater and into a recovery room and they monitor you and then they um do some skin on skin with the baby and then um got her to try her first feed down there and then they took me up to my room and I didn't react particularly well to the morphine so I was really itchy and really hot and also because I'd been because I I like they'd said to me you know prep that you might have a c-section tomorrow so like don't eat from this time because you're not you're not ideally not supposed to eat um by the time I actually got into surgery so like you know you're not always going to be the first person who had a c-section I certainly wasn't so by the time I kind of got out of there I probably hadn't eaten for like not quite 24 hours but probably 18 hours Mm -hmm. and so like my blood sugar and I know the feeling of low blood sugar because it happened a lot when I was quite insulin resistant Mm. it's that real feeling of like sort of shaky jittery can't concentrate can't do anything until you can eat something to bring that blood glucose back up and I just remember I think it was that plus the morphine plus the heat and um I remember (laughs) midwife came in and she was like right right should we try um maybe with another feed now and I was like I just need something to eat. (laughs) Like, can I just take a minute, like, just Mm. to recover? And she was like, yeah, okay, like, what do you want? And I was like, and she was like, do you want this, like, pale-looking mac and cheese that was on my plate? I was like, no, absolutely not. And she was like, okay, what do you want then? I was like, I don't know. (laughs) Can I just choose from my snacks? (laughs) Like, it was like, I just felt it was just that low level of blood sugar that I just didn't have the, like, patience to kind of and I don't know if any of you have felt like that real hangriness I'm mm. like oh my god I just need something to eat but it's yes. not that I just need something and then like but I can't do anything until this is like back up yeah. um so I think that and the like the morphine was just a bit like whoa crazy um but like once I got like some food into me I think that was really important like if anyone's in the same boat like get some food into you um take some stuff with you to like to bring that blood sugar back up so mm. like some you know sugary carby things that have a bit of protein or fat in them as well like I think I had some like bliss balls which were quite good oh yeah um and and then yeah and then felt really good so once the like I had like a cold flannel in my head to try and like cool me down because I was feeling really really hot once all that kind of subsided by the evening I was feeling pretty good and then um yeah then I was really lucky that I could get up that night and start walking around and um, have a shower and just start to start to kind of get the body moving a bit which was mm. so good like just my recovery was really excellent I think because I was able to get up so quickly afterwards and, and actually start moving so yeah super lucky that I recovered really well by the next day like um again because 
of the rampant COVID, they discharged me the next morning, so it was, mm. which is not normal for no. um, a C-section. But the my obstetrician was like, "Hey, you're actually at more risk here." Luckily, we um, have had a really great nanny that was helping us with Florence because I have worked the entire time through. Um, we have fanta- we had a fantastic nanny who also was um, she. Had almost completed her training for midwifery as well so oh, cool. my obstetrician was like actually like because you've got that support at home that's actually better like there wasn't any place in birth care but yet they like didn't really want me to stay in hospital because of the COVID mm. risk so they were like if you can get home and you've got that care then then do that and so I was at home within 24 hours yeah which wow. was pretty great yeah yeah I've had a c-section and I just like remember what that postpartum period was like and yeah it's definitely pretty quick pretty quick to get home yeah yeah it was but I mean like if I hadn't been feeling great then they would have just kept me there yeah yeah yeah. um they were just like you're feeling good like you're okay like I was able to you know walk out of the hospital like I wasn't in a wheelchair or anything like that it was like walk out um I think by the next day I was like walking up the road yeah awesome I was like recovered really well but if that's not the case for other people then they would definitely keep you in and Mm. help you a bit more with that recovery yeah 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 awesome and how did you find I know yeah you said you had some like support at home but how did you find the next week or so adjusting to life as a mum and recovering from this you know super major surgery and yeah talk us through the next week yeah, next week was was pretty good. I felt um, I felt pretty normal, apart from the fact that I felt like I was looking after someone else's baby. I don't <laughs> know if did you yeah. experience this, where you're like, oh. it's just that getting your. It, I I don't really think that I, it probably wasn't until like three months that I was like, it didn't feel like she was just someone else's baby that we're looking after. <laughs> um, but I just think that's quite normal because it's like you just yeah. go from completely like living your own life just suddenly Mm. you've got this little baby and so like just you know your mind can't catch up that quickly to to be like no this is you know well like you know logically that it's your baby but it's just that feeling of um Mm. how much life has changed so that was um but yeah she was she again like having um and then he was amazing because you know she could really teach us like what to do and help and be that kind of encyclopedia mm. for um what's like what's going on and like I remember Florence was crying and I was like I, I like what's wrong like I've she's fed she's slept she's good mm. and Alessia was like she's got wind I was like how how did you know that mm-hmm. she's like you can see like her knees are all tucked up under her body and I was like again would never have known that so mm. okay cool now that we do what do we do about it so it was so helpful having someone there to like teach us yeah all of those and out, especially because we hadn't been able to go to birth care so that was um that was really really helpful yeah the like the breastfeeding was a challenge and that's like you know when there was like no letdown and then why so there was a lot of like trying to figure out that a lot of mental load of trying to understand what to do and who to talk to and making appointments and like and then um yeah just trying to figure out how I was going to do that a lot mm. of pumping mm-hmm. of trying to trying to feed so yeah. I think that was it was just quite time consuming as well because we're trying like get her to feed um and then also pump so I was like feeding her and then always pumping and then also pumping on the hour every hour so it mm. was like it was a lot huge amount of work and so anyone that's gone through that like supply demand thing I feel for you it is a a huge amount of like of work um and then it was probably after about like the two-week mark when like milk had finally come in but it was still supply was really low that Mm. um they put me on domperidone I also um just also went on to some herbs so I went down to our local um natural like her shop and got a liquid tincture made up as well um, with some herbs that have been shown to be really helpful for improving breast milk supply. And then, um, yeah, and then it was just about like really trying to come to, I think the hardest thing for me post-C-section was just that 
um, not having my independence, mm. like not being able to drive. And it, you're already feeling, I think, when you first have a baby, just your independence has been taken away but yeah. because you now have a little baby to care for it plus that like extra part of a c-section not being able to drive so yeah that was um that was probably the one thing I struggled with but apart from that I like I didn't have a real huge fluctuation in hormones so I didn't have a lot of um like postpartum teariness or anything mm. like that so I was quite lucky that was the only real thing that I found was just that lack of independence yeah yeah yeah, can definitely, definitely relate <laughs> to that. And how did you find, um, like, in terms of, I know you're about 14 months on from birth now, so how have you found your physical recovery from your C-section? And do you notice now any, um, like, impairments or any symptoms of um, having a C-section delivery um, that you can, yeah, sort of notice day-to-day now? No, I don't. Although I have got a lower back injury at the moment and it's probably partially due to um, like weak core mm. post. So mm. I, um, again, I went through and did like a really specific returning to exercise from after a C-section, really yeah. trying to um, get those nerves. Because although your like abdominal muscles haven't been cut during a C-section, I thought they were, but they're not. Like it's, it's the nerves as well. And also too, like when you have had that major surgery and you're healing, you're less likely to actually be using your core and abdomen. So mm. that naturally will get a bit weaker. And also th- during pregnancy, it will naturally potentially get a, a, like weaker anyway. So that's the only thing that I've experienced was that yeah. I have got a lower back injury. But it, that's not just from a C-section. This is a long-standing thing of me mm. having poor posture and being being really lazy with my core exercise <laughs> and being really lazy with my stretching. Yeah. Um, so that's like part of it. But apart from that, no, nothing. I did find that I was quite tender until about four months. And so I specifically like... I was really active post C-section, which was like a lot of walking, but I didn't actually mm. get back into doing any like real exercise until about four months later. And I also just didn't feel like I was really that ready or interested. So I didn't push it. And, mm. um, but then when I did feel good, the pain like and nerviness did disappear. Mm. I could get back into starting to learn to, um, you know, like do those movements again, which is why I was quite mm. good doing a really specific return to exercise after a C-section to, really focus on those like the core and the breathing and um yeah and gradually get back to doing exercise mm-hmm. so that's been it but apart from that really fortunate like I think within about you know like a week I was walking 30 minutes so yeah. um yeah so my recovery was like quite quick yeah yeah um, oh. And also, I was I was driving before six weeks. So if anyone else has had a C section and they're feeling really good, you can actually talk to your midwife and be like, "Hey, I'm feeling pretty good. Mm. Like, can you check that I would be okay to drive?" And my midwife was like, "Yep, cool. Jump in the car. Show me. Making sure you can emergency brake. Like, done. Cool. You're good." So yeah. that was also really nice to have, like a bit of. Just someone to like be like, okay, so why can't I drive? Like, what's the what's mm. the thing that's a risk? And then like, do I actually have this? Or because everything's just a guideline, right? Like, the six yeah, yeah. is just a guideline, and some people could yeah. be longer, and some people could be shorter. Mm. So that was yeah, that was really nice. Um, so yeah, but apart from that, no other real um, challenges returning from a C section. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Very cool. And if anybody's just like before we close the episode, if anyone's listening to this and thinking, I either think I've got PCOS symptoms or um, what, like a lot of what you've sort of talked about at the start of your episode sounds like me, where does someone go for help if they think they might have PCOS or they're experiencing PCOS kind of symptoms? Yeah, give us um, give us some ideas around what to do next. Yeah, good, good question. So if you think that you've got, so PCOS symptoms are really like what fits the, like it's a, so PCOS is a syndrome. So there's no yeah. like one blood test or anything like that you, mm. you can go and get done to like categorically prove that you've got PCOS. It's, um, it's really your doctor's best judgment. It's like irritable bowel syndrome, right? Like mm. it's just a constellation of symptoms that we pull together to say, yeah, you've got this, you fit in this bucket. Yeah. So the symptoms that we're looking for there that your doctor will be looking for is, irregular cycles or like fertility challenges 
So a regular cycle could mean that you're getting either like more than 35 day long cycles mm-hmm. or shorter than like 23 days. Um, more common in PCOS is to have quite longer cycles, but you might be like completely missing a period um, for many years, like I was as well. Mm-hmm. And um, and this is if you're off hormonal birth control. So while you're on hormonal birth control, you won't know. You will be getting like a, a withdrawal bleed from the hormones. Mm-hmm. So that's one criteria. The second criteria is um, really symptoms of the higher androgens, which is what I was saying is like common in PCOS. So this would be either like if they test your, like do a blood test and they like test your testosterone and it's higher, that could be one factor, or you could have completely normal testosterone, but you have symptoms. So acne around your chin and jawline or on your chest or back or on your body, that could be one symptom. Um, Mm -hmm. Hair growth, again, around your chin and jawline. Um, or hair loss in the like crown of your head would be another like androgen symptom. So if you've got any of those, um, and then the last thing would be if they do an ultrasound and they find like follicles, these are like immature baby eggs, mm. if they find lots of those on your ovaries, that's what they call cysts, but they're not actually, they're just follicles. So if they find those on an ultrasound scan, that could be the other diagnostic criteria. But you mm-hmm. don't have to have a scan. Like if you had irregular cycles and like, hair growth around your chin and jawline, then that would like likely be enough to be diagnosed. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I would say a lot like some GPs just don't really have the knowledge of like all the parts of PCOS. So if you think that's the case and you've just spoken to a GP and they may have run a blood test, but you're listening to this and be like, hold on, Professor, said I didn't have to have high testosterone blood. I have got acne around my chin and jawline. I have got mm-hmm. facial body hair. Then um, you could either like, ask a doctor to refer you to a gynecologist or endocrinologist um, or go and see another GP for another um, another like opinion would probably yeah. be the best thing to do. Um, but otherwise, if you have those things and you suspect but you're struggling to get a diagnosis, then there's also no harm in just making some lifestyle changes mm. and see if they improve. Like very likely, very unlikely to decrease your health and more than likely to actually improve it. So mm. you go through and start making some changes to see if that actually helps your symptoms. Because mm. for some people, it can take a long time to actually get a diagnosis. And it's like, well, you might as well be doing a few things at the start mm. like while you're waiting for that. And yeah. um, and then, um, yeah, if you're interested in anything more, then we have heaps of, like, we have a podcast called PCOS Nutritionist Podcast. So um, you can have a listen to a few of those episodes and see if we, I interview lots of my patients. You can mm. kind of hear different stories of the way that different people present PCOS. So you might like to listen some of, to some of those. It'd be really helpful listening to someone and being like, oh, my God, yes. I am Jamie. Jamie is me. Like, this is it. Like, finally, someone explaining my symptoms in the way that I actually really feel them. Mm. And that can be enough for you to go, yeah, okay, well, regardless of what my doctor says, this sounds like me, and I'm going to make some of these changes and see if that helps. And and often it does. It's like, as I said, PCOS is is a syndrome like irritable bowel syndrome. Mm. And one thing that a lot of people find when they get diagnosed is that they're expecting this kind of miracle of like, yay, now tell me the solution. Mm. And there isn't really one um, a lot of the time. And so especially if your symptoms are like weight gain or acne or Mm. facial body hair, like yes, there are some medications that can help, but a lot of the time um, they're not a cure-all. And so you'll still be left up kind of to your own devices to go and find the solution anyway. So there's no harm in kind of just starting to make a few changes and see if that actually helps you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, So you can find us at the PCOSnutritionist.com or just search um, in the podcast and wherever you listen to your podcast to from the PCOS Nutritionist or find us by the same handle on instagram just all one word the pcos nutritionist um or on tiktok as well um and yeah that was that's really where did you where did you find us jordan was it through instagram no i actually found you through searching um because i have a lot of pcos symptoms and i always have but i've never had a pcos diagnosis um i think because i've got regular Mm. cycles and i've always had regular cycles but um yeah, I do have a lot of the other sort of symptoms that come along with PCOS. So I think I was actually searching in the podcast app for 
podcasts about PCOS and different types of symptoms and yours came up and then I found you through social media um, from the podcast. Yeah. So that, and it's so common. Um, you should listen to, I'm just trying to think, Dr. Stephanie's podcast is one of my patients. Um, mm-hmm. She had, same thing, really regular cycles. What it turned out to be was just a deficiency in her luteal phase. So her, like, her, pod, her, her periods were super regular, like every like 28, 30 days, mm-hmm. but she just had a slightly shorter luteal phase. And that is enough to have an irregular cycle. Yeah. So while it wasn't long, it was just that that like period between her ovulation and her, um, her period were shorter. And that just gives you one example about like why it could be like what, might look regular can mm. also be irregular but your doctor would never really know how to check yeah. that luteal phase so that's why yeah. so many people go you know go undiagnosed and why like if you feel like you fit the pattern like there's probably very little risk in making some lifestyle changes mm. Mm. to give it a give it a crack um, yeah. and that's why like why I say to people like just you know like you don't have to wait for a diagnosis yes that's mm. important if you want medication or like just to, on a fertility journey to know whether mm. you might be better with like letrozole instead of clomid you know like yeah. those are all things yeah. that are great to have a diagnosis for but in terms of when it comes to a lot of lifestyle changes nah you don't have to you can go and give things a try mm. if you want to yeah for sure Awesome. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Claire, for coming on the podcast today and sharing your story with us. I know that there were so many people out there that are just so stoked that we've done this episode and really get something um, yeah, out of everything you've shared today. So very grateful for you taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you for everything you do. I know firsthand how much <laughs> work it takes, um, not only to produce a podcast, but mm. to then also promote the podcast, put on social media keep up with all of like the show notes and the links and the everything else. And even just like thinking about like listening to who you're interviewing and thinking about what your follow-up question might be. Like it is a huge amount of work. So Mm -hmm. thank you so much for everything that you do in terms of sharing all of our stories and um, making it known so people can find this information because Mm -hmm. as you've brought up in this podcast, the like and a lot of the antenatal information isn't particularly comprehensive, especially if you don't fit the like, Pollyanna picture of yes. birth and yeah. post-birth and like if you're not a Pollyanna then um if you're like me then like it can be really isolating and hard mm. to get that information so thank you yeah. so much for making it publicly available for all of us mm, thank you Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Kiwi Birth Tales. I hope you have enjoyed it. Claire is such a wealth of knowledge and it was really interesting to hear about her pregnancy, birth and postpartum experience. I'd love to hear from you if you want to give me some feedback or chat about the episode. Find me at Kiwi Birth Tales or Jordan with a Y, J-O-R-D-Y-N at KiwiBirthTales.com. I will be back with another birth story episode for you next week. Have a lovely weekend if you're listening to this in real time and I will be back in your ears soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.